Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. Mary Oliver died this week. She's been one of our greatest poets, beloved and often quoted by people across ages and backgrounds. And so this hour, we're revisiting the rare interview she granted us in 2015 on the world and poetry and the life behind her writing. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Lord knows when I started writing poetry, it was rotten. The poetry was rotten? Sure. I mean, I was 10, 11, 12 years old, but I kept at it. With my pencil, I've I've traveled to the moon and back (laughs) probably a few times. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Mary Oliver was born in 1935 and grew up in a small town in Ohio. She won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award among her many honors and published numerous collections of poetry and also some wonderful prose. She lived and wrote for five decades in Provincetown, Massachusetts on Cape Cod, and her poetry is vivid with a sense of place. After an illness and the death of her longtime partner, the photographer Molly Malone Cook, Mary Oliver moved to southern Florida. And that's where I visited her. The question I always start with, whether I'm interviewing a physicist or a poet, is uh, I'd like to hear whether there was a spiritual background to your life, to your early life, to your childhood, however you would define that now. Well, I would define it now very differently from when I was a child. I was sent to Sunday school, as many kids are, and then I had trouble with the resurrection, so I would not join the church. But I was still probably more interested than many of the the kids who did enter the church. It's been one of the uh, most important interests of my life and continues to be. And it doesn't have to be Christianity. Um, I'm very much taken with the poet Rumi, mm-hmm. who is a, a, a Muslim, a Sufi poet, and read him every day and um, have no answers but have some suggestions. I, I know <laughs> that a life is much richer with a spiritual part to it. Mm-hmm. And I also think I'm, nothing is more interesting. So uh, I, I cling to it. Right. And then... You, I mean, you talk about growing up in a sad, depressed place, a difficult place. I mean, in another, you don't, you don't belabor this. I mean, in another place, there's a place you talk about. You were one of many thousands who've had insufficient childhoods, but yes. but that you spent a lot of your time walking around the woods. Yes, in Ohio, I did, and and I think it saved my life. I, uh, to this day, I don't care for the enclosure of buildings. Mm-hmm. It was a very bad childhood for everybody, every member of the household, not just myself, I think. And um, I escaped it, barely, with years of trouble. Yeah. But I did find the, the entire world in looking for something. But uh, 
I got saved by poetry, and I got saved by the beauty of the world. Yeah, and and there's such a convergence of those things. Yes. Then. It seems all the way through yes. in your life as a poet. It is. It is a convergence. And uh, I'm, I have a little difficulty now, having lived for 50 years in a small town in the north. I'm trying very hard to love the mangroves. <laughs> Well, I know. <laughs> Take, and I, it takes a while. <laughs> I have to say, you and your poetry, for me, are so closely identified with Provincetown and yes. and that part of the world and and that kind of dramatic weather, yes. that kind of shore. Yes. Uh, and so when I, you know, when I had this uh, amazing opportunity to come visit you, and I and I learned, and I said, "Oh, great, we're going to Cape Cod. <laughs> no, we're going to Florida." <laughs> yes. Well, I, ju- I just sold my condo to a very dear friend. Uh, this summer, mm-hmm. and um, I bought a little house down here, which is needs very uh, serious reconstruction. So I'm not in it yet, but sometimes it's time for the change. Yeah. Though for all those years, for decades of your writing, you know this picture was there of you, this pleasure of walking and writing, and I don't know, standing with your notebook. Yes. And actually writing while you're walking. Yes, that's, that's <laughs> how I did it. And and it is, and it seems like such a gift that you found that way to be a writer and to have that daily habit. Well, I, I don't, writing. as I say, I don't like buildings. Yeah. So I was, I, I, the, only, the only record I broke in, in school was truancy. I uh, went to the woods a lot with, bo- <laughs> with books. Right. Uh, Whitman in the knapsack. But I also liked motion. So I just began with these little notebooks and scribbled things as I, they came to me and then worked them into poems later. And always uh, um, I wanted the I. Many of the poems are I did this, I did this, I saw this. I, I wanted them, the I to be the possible reader mm-hmm. rather than about myself. Mm-hmm. It was about an experience that happened to be mine, but could well have been anybody else's. And that was my feeling about the I. I have been criticized by one editor who felt that the I would be felt as ego. And I thought, no, well, I'm going to risk it and see. And I think it worked. It enjoined the reader into the experience of the poem. I became the kind of person who did the walking and the scribbling. Yeah. But sh- shared it, yeah. If uh, if they wanted it, yes. And you also use this word, you know. There's this place where you're talking about writing while walking, you know, listening de- deeply. And I love this listening, listening convivially. <laughs> yes, yeah. And listening really to the world. Listening to the world. Well, I I did that, and I still do it. Mm-hmm. I still do it. I was going to ask you if you thought. You could have been a poet in an age when you probably would have grown up writing on computers. Oh, no. oh now? Oh, I, I very much advise uh, writers not yeah. to use a, a, uh, the computer. But it seems to me that more than the computer being the problem, the sitting at a desk would be a problem for that's you. A, that's a problem. Lots of things are problems. I, I, I always, as I talk about in, in the um, poetry handbook, discipline is very important. Yes. The habit, I think we're creative all day long. And if uh, we have to have an appointment to have that work out on the page, 
because the creative part of us gets tired of waiting or just gets tired. And it's helped a lot of students, young, young poets, yeah, that, doing that, to have that, that meeting with that part of oneself because there are, of course, other parts of life. I used to say I gave my, when I had jobs, which wasn't that often, but I'd say I'd give my very best second Second class to the <laughs> labor to, to the because I'd get up at five and by nine I'd already had my right my uh, my say yeah and also when you write about that the discipline that that creates space for something quite mysterious to happen you you talk about um, that wild silky part of ourselves. You talk the part of the psyche that works in concert with consciousness and supplies a necessary part of the poem. A heart of the star, as opposed to the shape of the star, let us say, exists in a mysterious, unmapped zone, not unconscious, not subconscious, but cautious. Where? What is that from? That's from the, that's from the poetry handbook. <laughs> It's it's been but a while. It's great, but it's but you say you say you promise it. It learns quickly what sort of courtship it's going to be. You're saying that the, the yeah. writer has to yeah. kind of a, in courtship with this yes. elusive, essential but elusive, cautious, you say cautious part, and that if you turn up every day, it will learn to trust you. Yes, yes, this yes, is yes, very, yes. I remember a very that. practical way about talking the, about the, something. The trust that's is very quite, is very important. Yes. Yeah. And that's the creative process. That is the creative process. It's it's also true that I I believe poetry. It is a convivial, and a, a kind of I mean we're, we're it's very old. It's very sacred. It's very uh, um, wishes for a community. It's a community uh, uh, ritual, certainly, and that's why when you write a poem, you you write it for anybody and everybody. Yeah. And you have to be ready to do that out of your single self. It's a giving. It's a, it's always it's a gift. It's a gift to yourself, but it's a gift to anybody who has the uh, hunger for it. Right. And I wonder if it's something about you know this process you describe, where you've applied the will, but also the discipline to reach or and also make room for something. That's very deep in us, right? I mean, I love this language, the wild, this wild, silky part of ourselves. I don't know, maybe yes. the soul. Uh, it's become a nasty word lately. Because I know it's it has. Used, it's become a lazy word. It's, yeah. It's, it's too bad. It's cliched. Yeah. Overused. So yeah, the silky part, let's just call it that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, so that if you, when you offer that, I mean, poetry does create a way to offer that in a condensed yes. form, yes. vivid form. And very often, it, I mean, uh, 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 it was Blake who said, I take dictation. Yeah. With that discipline and with that willingness and wish to communicate, very often things very slippery do come in that you, you weren't planning on receiving them. Right. But they do happen. It does. I have very rarely, maybe four or five times in my life, I've written a poem that I, that I never changed. And I don't know where it came from. But it does happen. But it, it you know, it, ha- it happens among hundreds of poems that you've, that you've struggled over. Yeah. But it's. Do not, you know which? Do you know what, what some of those are? Do you know what they are? In well, the, the Percy, the Percy one was one. Oh, okay. The, the last, time, the first time Percy came back. Yeah. I never changed a word of that. And there, there are others. Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember, but mm-hmm. there are a few. 
of course, there are also poems that I just write out and then I throw them out. Right. <laughs> Lots of those. <laughs> well, and also, you know, when you, when you talk about this life of waking up in the morning and being outside in this wild landscape and with your notebook in your hand and walking, it's so enviable, right? And, and, but then I know, I mean, when you're in the poetry handbook and there's the discipline of being there, but there's also the, the hard work of rewriting. And as you say, some things have to be thrown out. Oh, many, many, many have to be thrown out, for sure. There's an unromantic uh, part to the process as well. Well, that's, that's an interesting word. You, you know, I, somebody once wrote about me and said, I must have a private uh, grant or something that all I seem to do is walk around the woods and write poems. But I was very, very poor. Mm-hmm. And I found... Uh, I ate a lot of fish and a lot of clams. Right, and I realized that you you actually you weren't just walking around the woods, you were gathering food. Yes, And those early yes. years, yeah. mussels and clams and mushrooms and yeah. berries. Although you, you, re, you gave voice to this kind of really lavish, even ornate beauty that you lived in that was your daily... That's how That I was saw really it. your mundane world. Yes, that's true. So there's, so there's a question that you pose... In many different ways, overtly and implicitly, you know, how shall I live? Um, in, in Long Life, you wrote, you know, what does it mean that the earth is so beautiful and what shall I do about it? <laughs> what is the gift that I should bring to the world? What is the life that I should live? Which really is a question of moral imagination. Yes, and, it, yeah. and, it's an, and it's the ancient essential question. But I wonder how you think about how that question emerges and is addressed distinctively in poetry and through poetry. What does poetry do with a question like that, that other forms of language don't? Well, I, 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 would, I think I would disagree that other forms of language don't, but uh, poetry has a different kind of attraction. Yeah, so what is that attraction in poetry? I, th- I think it's, it's the way it's written. It's the fact that it is, has been communal for years and years and years, and we've missed it. But uh, I do think poetry has enticements of sound that, uh, that are different from literature. Literature certainly has it, too, or some literature, the best literature. And it has, uh, it's easier to, for people to remember. Mm-hmm. People are more apt to remember a poem and therefore feel they own it. Right. And, and can speak it to themselves as you might a prayer. Then they can remember a chapter and quote it. And that's very important because then it belongs to you. Mm-hmm. You, you have it when you, when you need it. Mm-hmm. But uh, poetry is, is certainly closer to singing mm. than prose. Right, right. And, and, and singing is uh, something that we all love to do or wish we could do. <laughs> uh, And it goes all the way through you. Yes, it does indeed. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, revisiting my rare conversation with the poet Mary Oliver, who died this week. I just wanted to read, I just love, um, I just want to read these. This is from Long Life also. The world is fun and familiar and healthful 
and unbelievably refreshing and lovely. And it is the theater of the spiritual. It is the multiform, utterly obedient to a mystery. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it is. We all, we all wonder, who's God? What's going to happen when we die? All that stuff. And I don't think it's, maybe, it's never nothing. I'm very fond of Lucretius. <laughs> Say some more. And, and Lucretius says, well, just everything's a little energy. You go, you go back and you're these little bits of energy and pretty soon you're something else. Now that's a continuance. It's, it's not the one we uh, think of when we're talking about the golden streets and the, the angels with how many wings and whatever. Right. The hierarchy of angels. Even angels have a hierarchy. But it's something quite wonderful. That the world uh, is pretty much everything is mortal. It it dies, but its parts don't die. Its parts become something else. And yet we know that when we bury a dog in the garden, and uh, with a rose bush on top of it, we know that there is replenishment, and and that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, what more there might be, I don't know, but I'm pretty confident of that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I mean, again, do you think? Uh, spending your life as poet and working with words and responding to the world in the way you have as a poet gives you, I don't know, tools to work with. To, because it, putting words around God or what God is or who God is or, you know, I don't know, heaven, it, um, it's always insufficient. Uh, it, it, it's, it's always uh, uh, insufficient, but, it, but the quest and the wonder is not... Uh, unsatisfying it's never totally totally satisfying mm-hmm. but it's intriguing and and also what one does end up believing even if it shifts has an effect upon the life that you live or the life that you, you choose to live or try to live mm-hmm. so it's an endless uh, unanswerable quest so i just i find it uh, endlessly uh, fascinating and i i think also religion is very helpful in people not thinking that they themselves are sufficient. Mm-hmm. That there is something that has to do with all of us that is more than all of us are. And I think, you know, that is what you do because of the particular vision that you have, what you pay attention to, what you attend to, which is that grandeur, that, that largeness of the natural world, which, you know, a couple of years ago when I was writing and I, I, I picked up your book, A Thousand Mornings, you know, here's the first one. I, I go down to the shore. I go down to the shore in the morning and depending on the hour, the waves are rolling in or moving out. And I say, oh, I am miserable. What shall, what should I do? And the sea says in its lovely voice, excuse me, I have work to do. I love that. I love that. And I have to say also, to me, it was just... It's so perfect. It, it kind of is like, what's the point of writing 50,000, bringing 50,000 new words into the world? This says it all. Well, I have had a, a, a rash, which seems to be continuing, of writing shorter poems. Mm-hmm. I noticed that in your more recent and it, poems. And it probably is, is an influence from Rumi, whose poems are, are, many of them are quite short. But if you could say it, in a few lines, you're just decorating for the rest of it, um, unless you could uh, in, intent make something more intense. But 
if, if you said what you want to say, you're not going to make it more intense. You're just going to re repeat yourself. Yeah. So um, I've got a poem that will start uh, the next book, and I think it goes like this. Um, Things take the time they take. Don't worry. How many roads did St. Augustine follow before he became St. Augustine? Same kind <laughs> of thing. What else is there to say? <laughs> and, you know, that's four lines, and uh, that's not a day's work, <laughs> but, but, the, but the poem is done. And it speaks so completely, perfectly to the eye who's reading the yeah. poem, even though it's... Yeah. It's about St. Augustine, but it's about all of us, right? Yeah, and people do worry that they're not yeah. not wherever they want to go. And St. Augustine, I had just read a biography of him, and he, you know, he was all over the map before he settled yeah. down. I, I'd like to talk about um, attention, which is a, another real theme that runs through your work, both the word and the practice. And uh, I, I know people associate you with that word and... But I was interested to read that you began to learn that attention without feeling is only a report, mm -hmm. that there's more to attention than for it to matter in the way you want yeah. it to matter. Yeah. Say, you say, say something about that learning. That you, you, you need empathy mm -hmm. with it rather than just reporting. Mm -hmm. uh, reporting is for field guides, and they're great. <laughs> they're helpful, but that's what they are. Mm -hmm. But they're not thought provokers, and uh, and and they don't go anywhere. And I, I say I say somewhere that attention is the beginning of devotion, mm -hmm. which I do believe. But that that's it. Mm -hmm. A lot of these things can't are said, but can't be explained. And yeah, I think that your poem, "A Summer Day," is. Maybe is one of the best known, and yes, it is. Um, I, I would I would say that's true. Yeah. So my daughter, who is now twenty one and all grown up, but who then was about twelve, um, was uh, assigned to memorize a summer day. The summer day. The summer day. The summer day in uh, sixth grade. And so she came home reciting this poem, and I felt really embodying it. And we actually played it in the show. Ah. Anyway, I brought it because I wanted you to hear it. Uh -huh. um, and so remember, she's not reading it. She'd learned it. Uh -huh. um, the summer day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the field, which is what I have been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, 
What is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? It's a beautiful reading. Is that fun for you to hear? Yeah. <laughs> How old was she then? She was about 12. Yeah. Beautiful. But so many, so many young people, I mean, young and old, have learned that poem by heart, and it's become part of them. Yeah. One thing about that poem, which I think is important, is that the grasshopper actually existed, and yet I was able to fit him into that poem. And the sugar he was eating was part of frosting from a Portuguese lady's birthday cake, (laughs) (laughs) you know, which wasn't important to the poem. Right. But even seeing that little creature come, come to my plate and say, I'd like a little helping of that. Right. It, it somehow fascinates me that that's, that's just personal for me, that it was Mrs. Segura, <laughs> her, probably her 90th birthday cake or something. Did she ever read the poem? Did she ever know? No, no she, was, she was past that. Uh-huh. Her, her, her daughters may have, but uh-huh. uh, I never advertised myself as a poet. And there was that wonderful thing about, about the town, and that is... I was taken as somebody who, who worked like anybody else. And I'd go, there was the one fellow who was the plumber, and I, we'd, we'd maybe meet in the hardware store in the morning. You morning. mean in, in Provincetown? Yeah. yeah. And he'd say, oh, hi, Mary, how's your work going? I said, pretty good, how's yours? Yeah. And it was the same thing. Yeah. There was no sense of, of eliteness or difference. And that was very nice. I was just, in fact, it's a fu- it is a funny story. When I... Uh, the Pulitzer Prize was announced, which I didn't even know I'd, they'd turned the book in for it. I was, at that time, as the whole town was doing, going out to the dump most mornings, which was a mess. That was before they clean up <laughs> to buy shingles. I was shingling the house or some kind of thing. Right. And a friend of mine came by, a, a, a woman who was a painter, and she said, Ha, what are you doing, looking for your old manuscripts? <laughs> It was very funny. And you didn't know she'd heard the news? I, I knew, but oh. I, I, my job in the morning was to go find some shingles. <laughs> After a short break, more conversation with the late Mary Oliver. You can always listen again and hear the unedited version of every conversation I have on the On Being podcast feed, now with special occasional bite-sized extras wherever podcasts are found. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org forward slash discoveries. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, remembering the great poet Mary Oliver, who died this week. We're revisiting the rare interview she granted us in 2015 on the world and poetry and the life behind her writing. She won the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize among her many honors, and her poetry is beloved by people across ages and backgrounds. Later in life, she moved from Cape Cod to Florida to be close to friends, and that's where we visited her. 
I wanted to also name the fact that, you know, as you said before, you're not somebody who belabors what is dark, what is what has been hard. I think it's important and maybe helpful for people because there's so much beauty and light in your poetry also that you let in the fact that it's not all sweetness and light. Um, and you did that a lot in the dream work. Book. I did. It, a I, lot, I did. And those poems are notably... And a lot Harder. of them I didn't, know, I didn't know at that time what I was, what I was writing about. I, I really had no un- understanding. You mean you didn't you didn't realize that they were so hard, or you literally didn't know what you were? No, there, there, there's a poem called "Rage." Yes, and I uh, it's a, it says she, and that was that was that's perfect biography, unfortunately, or autobiography. But I couldn't handle that material except in the, the three or four poems that, that I've done. Just couldn't. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, there's a line in Rage, in your dreams you have sullied and murdered and your dreams do not lie. Yeah. And that's... Well, that's how I felt, but I didn't, I didn't know I was... Certainly I didn't know I was talking about my father. Uh, children forget. I mean, they don't forget, but they forget the details. They just don't know why they have nightmares all the time. You know, it's very difficult. Uh, Isn't it incredible that we carry those things? No, all our lives. Well, decades and decades. We do, and we decades. do, we do carry it, but it it is very helpful to to figure out, as best you can, what happened and why these people were the way they were. Yeah. And it was a very a very uh, dark and broken uh, house that I came from. I mean, there's another. There's that poem in there, a visitor, mm-hmm. which mentions your father. And there's just you know, to me, this heartbreaking line, which also, I. You know, I have my own story. We all do. Um, I saw what love might have done had, had we loved, loved in, in time. time. Yeah. Well, he never got any love out of me. Yeah. Or deserved it. But what what you, you mostly what may, mostly is makes you angry is the loss of the years of your life. Mm-hmm. Because it does leave damage. Mm-hmm. But there you are. You do what you can do. And I think the. Um, You have such a capacity for joy, especially in the outdoors, right? Yeah. And you you transmit that, and it's that joy. You know, if you're capable of that, having you know, how much more? How much more of it would have would there have been? Um, well, I I I saved my own life by finding a place that wasn't in that house. Mm-hmm. And um, that was my strength. But I wasn't all strength. And uh, it would have been a very different life whether I would have written poetry or not. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, po- poetry is a pretty lonely pursuit. And uh, in many cases, I, I, I used to think I don't do it anymore, but I, that I'm talking to myself. There was nobody else in that house I was going to talk to. Yeah. And uh, it, it was a very uh, difficult time. And a long time. And I don't understand some people's behavior. <laughs> but I, and I guess what I'm saying, I think, is that it's a gift that you give to your readers to, to let that be clear. Um, that this 
you know that you're the your ability to love your wild your your one wild and precious life is hard one. Yeah, and I mean, I feel like you also, for all the uh, glorious language about God and around God, that goes all the way through your poetry. You know, you also acknowledge this this perplexing thing. I mean, this was in Long Life. What what can we do about God, who makes and then breaks? Every God-forsaken beautiful day. <laughs> well, we can go back and read Lucretius. <laughs> <laughs> what, what does Luc- Lucretius do then? Well, the, uh, Lucretius uh, just presents this marvelous uh, and important idea that what we are made of will make something else. Hmm. Which I, to me is very I- important. There is no nothingness. Yeah. With these little atoms that run around, too little for us to see, but uh, put together they make something, mm. and that to me is a, is a miracle. How, where it came from, I don't know, but it's a miracle, and uh, I think it's it's enough to keep a person afloat. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your last couple of books, which also are an insight into you at this stage in your life. And then I'd love for you to read some poems. Okay. Um, you have said that you were so captivated, that you, that you were, I, mean, I don't know if you've said it this way, but it seems to me you've kind of written about being so captivated by the world of nature that you were less open to the world of humans. Yes. And that as you've grown older, as you've gone through life... Um, what did you say? You've entered more fully into the human world yes. and embraced it. Is that a good set of... True. It's absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And was it passage of time? I mean, how... It was passage of time as a passage of understanding what happened to me and why I behaved in certain ways and didn't in other ways. Um, so it was clarity. Um, you wrote really beautifully about the death of Molly, yes. who you shared so much of your life with. And you wrote, I don't know, I'm finding my notes. The end of life has its own nature also worth our attention. Yeah. I liked that line. Yeah. And in some ways it, it feels to me when I read your poetry of the last couple of years that that's really this territory you're on, or, or at least well, part of it. Well, I should be. I, did, I don't mean, and I don't mean you're, I don't mean that the end of life, but just paying, well, paying attention. Well, I've been better. <laughs> But just a different, it's a different chapter. It, well, it, it, it is. I mean, uh, I, I had cancer a couple of years ago. Right. Lung cancer. And uh, it feels that death has uh, left his calling card. I'm fine. I get scanned, you know, as, as they do. I'm lucky. I'm very lucky. But all the same, you're kind of shocked. You know, doc, this doctor, that doctor, I, a, bad, a bad smoker. Thing and you're still smoking. Yep, and uh, last time the, do- uh, the doctor said, your lungs are good. Well, if you get good fortune, take it. <laughs> and you keep smoking. There's that poem, um, The Fourth Sign of the Zodiac, in the new book. Um, yeah, how does that start? Which one is that? Um, oh, I, uh, that's, the, that's a po- one of the poems about cancer. It, it, well, right, and you know, you haven't, I don't think, have you spoken much about your cancer? I don't, I think no. people know that you were ill. People knew I was ill or they didn't know. They didn't know what it was. In that poem, 
There's a very passing reference to it. Oh, yes, there is. There, there, are four, yes. there are four poems. One is about the hunter in the woods that makes no sound, all the hunters. It's a little bit long, but do you want to read it? Sure. Okay. Oh, where did I put my glasses out there? Ooh. Yeah, the fourth sign of the zodiac is, of course, cancer. Oh, that's what I meant. <laughs> Why should I have been surprised? Hunters walk the forest without a sound. The hunter strapped to his rifle, the fox on his feet of silk, the serpent on his empire of muscles all move in a stillness, hungry, careful, intent, just as the cancer entered the forest of my body without a sound. Now, these four poems are about the cancer episode, shall we say? The cancer visit? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you want me to go on to these others? Yeah, you want to go. Oh. Is it too much? No. Okay. This is the second poem of these four. The question is, what will it be like after the last day? Will I float into the sky, or will I fray within the earth or a river, remembering nothing? How desperate I would be if I couldn't remember the sun rising, if I couldn't remember trees, rivers, if I couldn't even remember, beloved, your beloved name. Three. I know you never intended to be in this world, but you're in it all the same. So why not get started immediately? I mean, belonging to it. There is so much to admire, to weep over and to write music or poems about. Bless the feet that take you to and fro. Bless the eyes and the listening ears. Bless the tongue, the marvel of taste. Bless touching. You could live a hundred years, it's happened, or not. I am speaking from the fortunate platform of many years, none of which I think I ever wasted. Do you need a prod? Do you need a little darkness to get you going? Let me be as urgent as a knife then and remind you of Keats, so single of purpose and thinking for a while he had a lifetime. Four. Late yesterday afternoon in the heat, all the fragile blue flowers in bloom in the shrubs in the yard next door had tumbled from the shrubs and lay wrinkled and faded on the grass. But this morning the shrubs were full of the blue flowers again. There wasn't a single one on the grass. How, I wondered, do they roll or crawl back to the shrubs and then back up to the branches, that fiercely wanting, as we all do, just a little more of life? Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, revisiting my rare conversation with the poet Mary Oliver, who died this week. There are some of your poems 
and I think the summer day is one, and wild geese is another that are just that have just entered the lexicon. Yeah, that uh, yes, that uh, three the summer day, uh, wild geese. There's there's one other. Uh, I can't remember, but I would say is the th- is the third one. But I don't remember it. If you um, think of it, tell me. Um, so wild geese is in dream work. Um, and I've heard people talk about that, wild geese, as a poem that has saved lives. And I wonder if when you write something like that, I mean, when you wrote that poem, or when you published this book, would you have known that that was the, the poem that would speak so deeply to people? Um, this is the magic of it. That poem was written as an exercise in end-stopped lines. As an exercise in what? End-stopped lines, period, at the end of the line. <laughs> I was working with a, 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 a poet. I had her in a class. So it was an exercise in technique. Yes. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's, not every line is that way. I was trying to show the variation. But my mind was completely on that. At the same time, I will say that, that I, uh, uh, I heard the wild geese. I mean, I just started out to do this for this friend and show her the, the, the effect of the, the, the line end is you've said something definite. It's very different from enjambment. And I love all that difference. And that's what I was doing. To your point that the mysteries and that combination of the yeah, discipline it, it, and, the, mm-hmm. and the convivial listening. Yeah, I was trying to do a certain kind of construction Nevertheless, once I started uh, writing the poem, it was the poem, and I, I knew the, the construction well enough that I didn't have to think about, does, do I have a, need an end sound line here, or is, is this where I should be? It just worked itself out the way I wanted for the exercise. Would, would but, you read that one? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, kind of a secret, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it's the truth. Wild geese... I actually thought it was, oh no, there it is, 14, you're right. Wild geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Well, it's a subject I knew well a lot about. Yeah. You know, so it... It was just there in you. It was? It was there in you. It was there in me, yes. Once I heard those geese and, you know, said a line about anguish and where that came from, I don't know. I'd say that's one of the poems that... That just came. Yeah. It wasn't dictated, but that's what Blake used to say. Yeah. 
And it's it, it, just a way of saying you don't know where it comes from. Yeah. But if you've done, if you've done it a lot, and uh, Lord knows when I started writing poetry, it was rotten. The poetry was rotten? Sure. I mean, I was 10, 11, 12 years old. But I kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. I, I used to say, I, I, with my pencil, I, I've traveled to the moon and back <laughs> probably a few times. I kept at it after, every day. And mm -hmm. uh, finally, you learn things. Um, I'm conscious that I want to move towards a close. I, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more. I mean, you've, you've mentioned Rumi a few times um, in, in A Thousand Mornings, you say, if I were a Sufi, for sure, I would be one of the spinning dancing. kind. Yeah. And that's clear. I mean, that actually, it makes so much sense from mm -hmm. how you were always on the move, even, yeah. even as a teenager. Um, how do you think your spiritual sensibility, and here we are again with that tricky word, but how has your spiritual... I don't want to say how's your spiritual life. Um, you know, I mean, you've said you've said somewhere you've become more spiritual as you've grown older. And I mean, what do you mean when you say that? What's the content of I've that? Be I've become um, kinder, mm. more people oriented, more um, willing to grow old. I always was investigative in, in terms of uh, everlasting life. But uh, a little more interested now, <laughs> a little more content with my answers. There's this poem, this, the second poem in A Thousand Mornings, which is your 2013 book, which also to me just kind of like says it all. What, what's the point of that I happen to be standing? Would you read that one? Oh, yeah. Which is just, well, there it is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't know where prayers go or what they do. Do cats pray while they sleep half asleep in the sun? Does the opossum pray as it crosses the street? The sunflowers, the old black oak growing older every year? I know I can walk through the world along the shore or under the trees with my mind filled with things of little importance in full self-attendance, a condition I can't really call being alive. Is a prayer a gift or a petition, or does it matter? The sunflowers blaze, maybe that's their way. Maybe the cats are sound asleep, maybe not. While I was thinking this, I happened to be standing just outside my door with my notebook open, which is the way I begin every morning. Then a wren in the privet began to sing. He was positively drenched in enthusiasm. I don't know why. And yet, why not? I wouldn't persuade you from whatever you believe or whatever you don't. That's your business. But I thought of the wrens singing, what could this be if it isn't a prayer? So I just listened, my pen in the air. <laughs> well, the poems keep coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in the Poetry Handbook, you wrote... Um, Poetry is a life-cherishing force, and it requires a vision, a faith, to use an old-fashioned term, yes, indeed, for poems are not words, after all, uh -huh. but fires for the cold, ropes let down to the lost, something as necessary as bread in the pockets of the hungry, yes, indeed. 
And I just wanted to read that back to you because I feel like you've given that to so many people. You've demonstrated that. And you know, you, you, you also write in poetry about thinking of Schubert scribbling on a cafe napkin. Thank yeah. you, thank yes. you. And I yes. feel like so many people when they read, when they imagine you standing outdoors with your yeah. notebook and pen in hand, you know, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. Oh, it's been a beautiful conversation. You're uh, much welcome. <laughs> I'm free, I'm free! Yes, you are! <laughs> Mary Oliver died this week. Her many honors included the National Book Award and the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. She published over 25 books of poetry and prose, including Dreamwork, A Thousand Mornings, and The Poetry Handbook. You may not know that we usually post the unedited interview behind each week's episode. The 90 minutes we originally recorded with Mary Oliver contains so many lovely moments, including more of her ruminations on her move from the landscape of Cape Cod to that of Florida, and on her love for the dogs in her life. Have your dogs and your love of your dogs and life with dogs um, infused your theology? Or is that too lofty a question? Well, Rilke wrote a poem. Uh, some um, a friend of mine had, did a painting of it, of just a picture of a dog. And the, the quote is, um, the soul for which there is no heaven. Hmm. Well, no thank you. I mean, there are going to be trees in paradise, as if we're going to have fun imagining it, whether it exists or not. Dogs are certainly going to be there. Poor little burros and donkeys, after all the work they've done in the world. <laughs> Good heavens, yes. <laughs> On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambalay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Kaspatek Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, and Siri Grassley. Special thanks this week to Anne Godoff and Liz Calamari at Penguin Press and to Regula Nutzli at the Charlotte Sheedy Literary Agency. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice you hear singing our final credits in each show is hip-hop artist Lizzo. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange, and is a Krista Tippett public production. Ah.